If you had a choice of the city uh, where you could live, which city would you choose? Would you like to have a, an apartment on uh, the beach at Copacabana? Uh, would you like to uh, be able to be close to all of the uh, central parts of London with the Tower Bridge and with Buckingham Palace? Uh, maybe you would like a, a beautiful city like Cape Town in South Africa. Uh, wherever it might be that you would like to live, uh, think about that for a moment. Think about the place that would be the most pleasant and enjoyable and exciting uh, place that you could reside. Well, what we're going to be talking about today is a city that you and I will be living in. And of course that city will be Jerusalem. Jerusalem at the moment is a dusty, dry city is, as the capital of uh, Israel, the state of Israel. Of course, the Jordanians would like to claim it is their capital as well, but it's uh, occupied by Israelis at, the, at this time. But if you think about it for a moment, Jerusalem has held a position in people's minds over many, many years as being an important place uh, for their religious beliefs. In fact, three of the religions of the world claim that Jerusalem is, if not the most important city to them, uh, the second or maybe the third most important city. And so it is that Jerusalem holds a position and place that is important to many people. Now, I thought it might be helpful for us if we were to talk a little bit, first of all, about the physical city of Jerusalem. Did you know that it is just uh, a little off the axis of the 35th parallel, uh, or actually longitude, uh, east of Greenwich, meantime, uh, it is 32 degrees north of the equator. And if you do a sort of an axis like that of, the, of those two uh, conjoining uh, lines, uh, then what you find is Jerusalem is just a little to the southeast of that. Now, being at 32 degrees, that's one of the most equitable uh, positions that you can have, the most, one of the best positions on the on the globe. It's right in the temperate zone. Uh, the equivalent is San Francisco on the west coast of the United States in the northern hemisphere. Uh, in the southern hemisphere, Sydney falls at 32 degrees and I think uh, Cape Town is pretty close to that as well. And so you can see that this is a place where you're going to have uh, hot, uh, dry winters and uh, cool, wet winters, just an ideal Mediterranean climate. It's a place where you can grow uh, apricots, uh, dates, uh, you can grow pomegranates, uh, wheat, barley, uh, virtually anything that you, you would like to enjoy as, a, as beautiful food uh, can be grown in that region, if you've got the water, of course. And, of course, uh, a lot of Jerusalem now is almost... Uh, arid and parts of it just to the east of course a complete desert the Judean wilderness is very very dry because it's in a, a rain shadow from the from the uh, the rains and the clouds that come up off the Mediterranean another interesting fact about, fact about Jerusalem <coughs> is that it's uh, at almost 3,000 feet above sea level which means that in the summertime uh, you get uh, hot dry uh, warm, well, not just warm, but as I say, hot days, cool evenings, very, very pleasant in the evening, always a cool breeze that comes up. And in the wintertime, it can get so cold that you get snow in Jerusalem. 
So Jerusalem's an interesting place to visit. Uh, in 1971, I had the privilege and opportunity of being with uh, many of the other Ambassador College students that went to the dig and worked alongside the Hebrew University students uh, as we worked on Professor Benjamin Mazar's excavations of the Southern Temple Wall. I have many memories of that time, uh, pleasant memories. It was uh, um, blue skies every day. Uh, we started work at 7 o'clock in the morning and finished at 2 in the afternoon. Uh, we would go home and have a late lunch at the hotel where we were. I just tried to think of, uh, it was Malon Shefed, uh, the Shepherd Hotel uh, in the West Bank uh, area or the, uh, the eastern side of, of Jerusalem in the old Jordanian area. It was a wonderful experience. Uh, I remember walking through the old city and, and smelling the uh, falafels uh, uh, cooking uh, in the olive oil uh, from the street vendors there in the uh, old city. Uh, I remember buying a, a gold ring uh, at that time when gold was $35 an ounce. And I got a, a ring for about, I think it cost me 10 or 12 uh, pounds sterling at the time. Um, what else do I remember? Just, just the opportunity to, to mix with uh, both Israeli Jews and, of course, Arabs and, and Bedouin. I remember one time we went to a, a Bedouin feast and uh, we all sat around this big table and there was this pile of, uh, of rice with um, pieces of, of lamb uh, sort of around the rice, but in the middle of the rice was the sheep's head sitting up like this, with its eyes still in their sockets. Uh, I know some of you are already starting to get a little bit uh, upset about this, but uh, it was just the way that was the culture. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was a great experience. Um, we um, learnt Hebrew in the afternoon classes that we had after the dig, after lunch. Uh, we learnt uh, Israeli songs. Uh, I remember we learnt... Uh, Psalm 133, uh, verse 1. It's a beautiful uh, uh, psalm. We know it as that. Uh, but in Hebrew, it's Hine matov umanayim shevit achim gam yachad. How beautiful and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Uh, we learnt uh, uh, expressions that were helpful when we were uh, you know, walking through Jerusalem. I remember on a Friday afternoon going down to... Uh, uh, the, um, the Jewish uh, area of Jerusalem going into a shop and as you left the shop probably about 3 o'clock in the afternoon uh, they would say to you Shabbat Shalom in other words have a happy Sabbath uh, so it was a very interesting experience to be there in Jerusalem at that time in fact what was interesting was that my father had been in Jerusalem at uh, 21 or 22 years of age um, during the Second World War, he was with the Australian 6th Division and uh, they were uh, garrisoned at, at Gaza and uh, then he would sometimes come up to Jerusalem and he had a photograph of him in his Australian military uniform outside this shop called the OBG shop and uh, so he, got, he sent this photograph to me so I went back down there, I was about the same age, about 21, 22 years of age I went to the exact same position where he stood and I was the same age and I had someone take a photograph of me right outside the same shop. <laughs> so we, uh, 
we had a tremendous experience there in Jerusalem at that time. I think there was enough of a flavor, you might say, at that time for a two-month uh, um, working holiday uh, that I have got Jerusalem well and truly in, in, in my blood. It, uh, it's, uh, it's a memory there that will never go out. In fact, sometime I'd like to get back there and, and visit again. But when we go to Jerusalem as kings and priests to rule with Jesus Christ, it's going to be a very different time. Uh, the whole world will have been through the terrible tribulation. The battle of Armageddon will have been taken place. Uh, it will have been, the whole of the Middle East will have been through an absolutely crucial and difficult time. It's already in a difficult time. But, you know, when you read the Bible and what it says about Jerusalem, there's an awful lot of bad stuff that's got to happen before the good stuff can come. So this afternoon, I thought it might be helpful for us if we were to simply go through what we might call the past of Jerusalem, the present, and look into the future. So that's the purpose of our study. I hope you'll find it interesting. Uh, certainly the references in the Bible to Jerusalem uh, always evoke uh, interest and, uh, and fascination. So let's see how we go with that. Okay, a few more facts about Jerusalem. Uh, the area of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is actually situated on a mountain range that forms the western bank of the Jordan Valley. And this valley, the Jordan Valley, uh, which includes, of course, Galilee and the Dead Sea, and that finally you come down, if you have a look at a map in the back of your Bible, you'll see where it comes down through a section of probably about uh, 150 miles, uh, you know, 230 kilometers, uh, 250 or so kilometers where it runs down from the, the bottom of the Dead Sea to the very tip of the Gulf of Aqaba. And that area there, that, that road and that area is called the Arba, which means the dry region. And so the Arba uh, connects the Dead Sea with the Red Sea. Now, once you get to the Red Sea, that uh, then spills down and you find that that leads right out into the Indian Ocean uh, uh, past the Horn of Africa. But what's also interesting is that this particular depression, because I think most of you are aware of the fact that the, the Dead Sea is about 1,200 feet below sea level. And you might say, well, how could it be below sea level? How come the sea didn't rush in? Well, what's happened is that um, area that separates what you might call Asia from Africa and Europe at one particular point in time, those two plates pulled apart and, and the, the whole uh, landmass sank. And it didn't just sink in the Red Sea. That valley, which is called the Rift Valley, runs right the way from up there at Mount Hermon and, and, and then Galilee, down through the Dead Sea, through the Red Sea, and crosses the, uh, the coast of Africa in Ethiopia. And that rift valley, this, this depression, this low place, runs right the way down through uh, the Sudan, uh, Ethiopia and the Sudan, into northern Kenya. Uh, just recently, uh, I was visiting Kenya, and I took a trip from Nairobi to Lake Victoria. And as you do, you come, because uh, uh, Nairobi is at about 5,000 feet above sea level. 
and you come across this plateau near Nairobi and then you drop down probably about a thousand feet into the Rift Valley and then you come up the other side out of the Rift Valley and then you go across and Lake Victoria is there. In this Rift Valley there was a, I remember one particular site that was really beautiful. We were, we were driving along and uh, I could look down and there was a lake there and the driver uh, said to me, can you see that uh, the, the lake is blue but there's a big pink area on the edge and you could, you could see this from a, quite a distance, you could see this whole area of pink. He said, they are flamingos. And uh, it was just a beautiful area of, of, of uh, western Kenya. Then that rift valley uh, continues on down through uh, Tanganyika, uh, what used to be uh, Tanganyika, uh, through Tanzania now, uh, right down as far as the Victoria Falls. So Jerusalem sits at a very crucial position on the edge of the what we might call the Europe-African plate as it is uh, very, very close to the Asian plate. So let's uh, go to a scripture in Hebrews chapter... Uh, sorry, first of all, we're going to go to uh, Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4. And I want you to notice here uh, a scripture relating to the, the Mount of Olives. Uh, we read this, of course, at the, at the Feast of Tabernacles a great deal. It says, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to west. Now presently, the valley that runs uh, between the Mount of Olives and the uh, Dome of the Rock, or what you might call the, uh, the, the, the Holy Mountain area, uh, the Kedron Valley, that valley runs north-south, not, not east-west. But this time there's going to be a split, as it says, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. And then as it says in verse 8, and in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. Which is, you know, the reason they say that is because in that part of the world, the rivers there and creeks there don't flow all year round. This is going to be a huge spring of fresh, clear, beautiful water. And do you know what that water represents? It really does represent the water of life. It's symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And notice what it says, verse 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. And what is actually going to happen is that Jesus Christ will have his um, throne right there in Jerusalem and out from under his throne water will flow this way to the, uh, sorry, this way to the east and that way to the west this that goes to the east will flow down into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea will be cleansed and, and made whole and it will f flow down through into the, uh, the Red Sea and out into the Indian Ocean and the other one will flow westward into the Mediterranean. So that is a yet future event. But right now, I can tell you there is no river of water flowing out uh, from that particular uh, part of Jerusalem. 
Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11 now. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13. Hebrews chapter 11. This is, of course, the faith chapter. And the point I want to make here is that the men and women who were faithful to God throughout their lives had a vision. And the vision was this Jerusalem that they would be living in with Jesus Christ, their Lord and Saviour. Do you remember even Enoch said, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. So way back to the very early days of of, uh, Abel and of Seth and of Enoch, before the flood, these men knew about the world tomorrow. They knew about Jesus Christ coming as the Messiah. They knew what their position would be as one of the ten thousands of the saints. Notice it doesn't say hundreds of thousands. And it certainly doesn't talk about millions. No, Jesus Christ is only going to have his saints ruling in the first resurrection numbered in the tens of thousands. That's not many. That's not many at all. Notice here in Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to start here in, uh, in verse 13. It says, These all died in faith, speaking of those patriarchs, the men and women of the old times. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And then it says of them, in verse 14, For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, Abraham, or Abraham as he was at that time, could have gone back to Ur of the Chaldees. You know, Joseph could have gone back out of of Egypt. Um, Daniel could have gone out of Babylon and back. But these men, and Esther's another good example, you know, she could have fled uh, and, and run away from her responsibilities, but she didn't. These men and women stayed faithful. They knew God had put them in a place for a reason. And they simply said, This is where I am as a pilgrim at this time. My ultimate destination is Jerusalem in the kingdom. But I'm not there yet. You know, one interesting thing about being in the ministry, my wife and I, in 33 years in the ministry, have never had a choice as to where we live. We have only ever lived where we have been sent. In fact, another interesting thing, I have never in my whole life ever applied for a job. I've only ever been given one. (laughs) Uh, So it's an interesting situation. Uh, We are all like that. Now, you might not be quite the pilgrim and the uh, sojourner that uh, these people are and certainly that, that we are at this time. But I think it's helpful for us to understand that that's where we are going to be. You know, I was... uh, uh, talking to the, speaking to the London church uh, recently and I made the comment, I said as human beings we worry about the now all the time oh, you know, what's my position now, where am I living now what car am I driving now what am, 
What's happening in my life now, now, now? Frankly, brethren, the now is not as important as the future. You know, if we can keep our minds on Jerusalem, if we can keep our focus and our thinking on being in God's kingdom and being in Jerusalem, being like these people here in Hebrews chapter 11. Let's read on a little bit more and we'll see in verse 16. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. That doesn't mean in heaven, it means a country or a place or position that is heavenly. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. And let me say, God is preparing a city for you and me. God is preparing those things for us. But you know what? We've got to prepare ourselves as well. And a lot of that is the mindset. Could you walk out of your home tomorrow and just leave everything behind? But what about my garden? What about my cat? What about this? What about that? You know, we've got to be careful that we don't put great store on those things which we think are more important than what God thinks is important. That was the problem with Lot's wife. She turned and looked back. We cannot look back. Once we're being called, our eyes are set in the direction of Jerusalem. That's where we are going to live. You might say, well, I don't particularly like a hot, dry Mediterranean climate. Let me tell you, if you can be a spirit being, you won't be worried about the climate. But you will be worried and be concerned about whether you're going to be there to help and serve with Jesus Christ. So we can see this wonderful scripture here that these people trusted and in God and they look forward to, as it says, a heavenly country and a place, a, a city that has been prepared for them. <clears throat> okay, where do we start really with the story of Jerusalem? Genesis chapter 22, of course, is well known to us all. Genesis chapter 22, let's turn there. This is the scripture pertaining to Abraham having to offer his son Isaac. And here in Genesis chapter 22, notice what it has to say regarding Abraham and Isaac. God spoke to Abraham and he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one side of the mountain of which I shall tell you. Now immediately, do you know what Abraham would have said? God can't be serious. God doesn't like and doesn't want human sacrifice. Uh, he, imagine the doubts that went through his mind. <coughs> it must have been very, very difficult. But, verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. What an incredible story. We don't hear any more about uh, this place called Moriah uh, until it uh, comes up as the threshing floor of Onan. In Joshua chapter 15, Joshua 15 verse 63, Joshua chapter 15, 
and verse 63, we have a reference once again to this particular geographic position. It says, this is speaking of the inhabitants of the time that were there, the Jebusites, the people of Jebus. As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwelt with the children of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Now this is a, an editorial note by Samuel. Uh, I think most of us understand and realize that as the Bible was being compiled, God appointed certain uh, people. Moses was one, Samuel was another, who had the responsibility of compiling things. And this is a little notation made by Samuel. And this is just prior to David and his valiant men taking the city of Jerusalem, or Jabus as it was at the time. First Kings chapter 5, First Kings chapter 5, notice, and uh, starting here in verse 3. This is after David had taken Jerusalem. Uh, he had wanted to build a temple for, uh, for God, uh, but it was left to his son Solomon. And so in verse 2 it says, Then Solomon sent to Hiram. Hiram was the king of uh, Tyre. And he had in his uh, territory, in his land, his kingdom, uh, great stands of this beautiful tree called the, the cedar of Lebanon, uh, from which you could cut huge uh, pieces of, of timber that were used for, in the um, construction of the temple. And so Solomon wrote to Hiram in verse 3, he says, You know my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me, the, given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. Uh, uh, chapter 9, verse 1 of First Kings. First Kings, chapter 9, verse 1. So, <clears throat> um, Solomon had this uh, responsibility to, to build the temple that David would, have done, would love to have built. Here in, in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, It came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared to him in Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built to, to put my name there uh, forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, if you walk before me as your father walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, that I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. And so here was Solomon with this absolutely magnificent building. People came from all over the world. The Queen of Sheba came to see the, the, the temple of Solomon and she said, this isn't, what I heard was not even the half of what I see. <clears throat> so Jerusalem became the showcase of Solomon's kingdom. And yet we know that uh, during that period of time Solomon uh, lost his faith, he became apostate and so the city of peace, which of course is what Jerusalem means, uh, the name for, for Jerusalem in the Hebrew is Irushalayim. Ir means city, Shalayim is the plural of the word Shalom, so we have Irushalayim. 
That was a beautiful, beautiful piece of music when we were uh, <coughs> in Israel that we learnt. Yerushalayim shalt sahav, v'shel nachoshet v'shelor, Jerusalem, city of silver and of gold. Absolutely beautiful piece of music. If uh, any of you are, are fortunate enough to uh, have someone in your congregation who could sing that one as a special music piece, uh, you would really love that piece of music. Yerushalayim shalt sahav. And so it is that the temple was built. Uh, David uh, didn't get to, <coughs> to see the beauty of it, but Solomon and his sons and his sons, uh, they saw the beauty of the, of the temple. And that the kings of both Israel and Judah rebelled against God and the temple fell into disrepair. There were, there were periods of, of restoration. Under Josiah it was restored. Uh, but some of the kings of Judah uh, brought pagan gods into the temple until finally God had had enough and God's presence, God's glory left the temple and it was just a hollow shell. Until finally, in the year 621 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar came and began the destruction and the ultimate uh, captivity of the Jewish people culminating in 585 BC. And so Jerusalem was left desolate for 70 years. And then the captives of Babylon came back under Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. And they rebuilt the temple. Well, they made an effort to rebuild it. Notice here in Haggai, the book of Haggai, <coughs> I always uh, give you plenty of time because people find Haggai a hard book to find, including myself. <laughs> it goes Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. H Z H Z. Oh, sorry, H Z H Z. <laughs> For our American brethren. Remember, of course, I am one of those old Ephraimites that still say Z. Here in Haggai, uh, chapter 2 and verse 2. God says, speak now to Zerubbabel. By the way, the name Zerubbabel means born in Babylon. The son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. And to Joshua, the son of Ahosedech, the high priest. And to the remnant of the people saying, who is, a left, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is this not in your eyes as nothing Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshadeh, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, it's amazing how time goes on, and events occur so that we can have biblical parallels even in our day today. Many of you who are listening to this and watching this uh, sermon uh, will have visited Pasadena in the 1970s, the 1980s. And you will remember the absolutely beautiful auditorium that was built to the glory of the great God by Mr. Herbert Armstrong. And you will remember the onyx and the, the marble and the gold and the beautiful deep purple and gold 
rich woolen carpet that was woven for it. It was a, a jewel of a building. But we no longer possess that. It's uh, no longer where we go for our conferences. It's, and what we have here in Charlotte, though it's beautiful, it's just not anything like what we had before. And so, excuse me, you might say, <coughs> uh, as it says here, uh, yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong. All the people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. I am amazed at what the living church of God has been able to achieve with only a fraction of the resources that we had in the worldwide church of God. And yet we have a television program that goes out. We have 325,000 subscribers to Tomorrow's World magazine. We have an income that is able to support just <laughs> all of this work and effort. And so it is that we are grateful that we might, though we might not have the old uh, auditorium and all that went with it, we do have the rebuilding of a temple or a rebuilding of a work. Now what happened after this? Well, we know that Jerusalem then passed into several hands. We know that Alexander the Great came down from, from Greece. I should do it this way because uh, that's the direction for you. He came down uh, and his uh, successors, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, the two north and south empires of the old Greek empire, they sort of fought over Jerusalem during that period of time. And there was a short period of time where the Jews themselves were able to administer Jerusalem under the Maccabees. And so the Maccabees uh, uh, were able to restore much of the worship of God at that time until, of course, Antiochus Epiphanes came and uh, slaughtered a, a pig and, and uh, did libations and uh, sacrificing of a pig there in Jerusalem. And then after that, we had the Roman Empire and they came in and they overran Judea and they did the worst of all things they installed an Edomite family you know the Edomites the, remember there was uh, Jacob I have loved and Esau or Edom I have hated and so here we have the Edomite family the, the Herods installed by the Romans to administer Jewish Jerusalem what an ignominy what a what a humiliation it must have been for the Jews. And yet, one of those Herods, Herod the Great, he rebuilt the temple, the third temple, and it was a beautiful building. He uh, built it with beautiful stonework. Uh, some of those stones are still there, and you can tell the Herodian stones, they have been uh, cut very, very straight, right down uh, at a 90-degree at a angle. Uh, but they also have a mitre, or a, an indentation about that wide and about that deep on each one of the stones. And so from the distance, it looks very, very grand. And so it was that uh, this was the temple to which Jesus Christ came when he came to, uh, to earth for the first time. Let's look at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And notice what Jesus Christ said about this particular temple. Matthew 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? 
Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, about 40 years after he, has, he spoke these words, many of those stones were thrown down by the Romans at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But not all of the stones. Because when you visit Jerusalem, you can see the lower courses of the temple and the temple wall are still in place. No, this scripture, Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2, will not be fulfilled until Jesus Christ returns and a huge earthquake is just going to flatten that whole area and those stones will be swept away and there will be a fresh, clean start for the new temple that will be built, which you read of in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. And so this period of time when Jesus Christ was on earth in Jerusalem, that was not the millennium. You know, you think about the, the first Jerusalem that Jesus Christ came to. What was it? It was a Roman city. It was a Greek city in many ways because the, the Greeks had ruled there for such a long time and you might say the, the culture was, was Greco-Roman, Greece and Rome together. Uh, as I said, the, the Edomites were ruling now, the Jews were able to conduct their sacrifices. They had the, the Pharisees. They had the Sanhedrin. So, there was a, a modicum of Jewish uh, administration in Jerusalem at that time. But it most certainly was not the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ was able to, to kneel down and, and write certain things in the sand when the woman taken in the act of adultery was brought before him. This was not a God-fearing, obedient city. This was a Gentile city. This was a, a place where Jesus Christ came the first time to contrast the Jerusalem that he will come to the second time. So then what happened after Jesus Christ died? As I mentioned in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And then after the Bar revolt in 132, 133 AD, the, the Roman authority said no Jew is to be found within the precincts of Jerusalem. And they were banished and sent out from Jerusalem. And it went for centuries after that that no Jews were found in Jerusalem. They went through the Byzantine area, uh, period. First of all, the Omeyads, or Omeyads, depending on how you pronounce that. Then the Byzantines, then the Arabs, then the Crusaders, then the Turks, and finally in 1917, after the Battle of Beersheba, the, uh, the Turkish Ottoman forces withdrew from Jerusalem and General Allenby, the British uh, general of the day, marched into Jerusalem, thus bringing to an end of a period of time of uh, over 1,800 years of Gentile rule of Jerusalem. And the British administered Jerusalem and Palestine as a League of Nations uh, mandate uh, right through that period of time up until 1948. In May of 1948, the State of Israel came into existence and the Jewish people have been administering that ever since. While well, there was a period of time between 48 and 67 where 
the Jordanians actually administered the, the east side of Jerusalem. But now, since 1967 until now 2007, that's a, a whole 40-year period, the Israelis have, the Jews have administered Jerusalem. But can I ask you, once again, even though it's a Jewish enclave and a Jewish city, is it the kingdom of God? No, it isn't. There have been so many suicide bombings. They've had to build a, a big concrete wall right around the, the area of Israel to protect themselves. They're not trusting in God to protect them. They're relying on themselves and their own government and their own police force and their own army. And so you can see that the kingdom of God is not yet here. And as we read before, there are some pretty terrible prophecies that are going to come to pass. Daniel chapter 11, let's have a look at that. Daniel chapter 11. It's a prophecy for the very near time, the near future. Daniel chapter 11 verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. That's the king of the north. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall uh, enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land. That's the holy land. And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people, that is the the uh, royal family of, uh, of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Verse 45, uh, it says, And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. So this is the end of the beast power. Uh, this is uh, Jesus Christ returning to establish his government. And so now we come to uh, Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12, let's turn there. <coughs> Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2. Maybe we should read verse 1 first of all. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding people, peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples, all who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the people with blindness. So here we have a great description. Verse 8. In that day, says the Lord, uh, in that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is after Christ has returned. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. 
And I will put on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. So here we have that transition from Jerusalem being absolutely overturned. Remember it says in Luke 21, it says half of of Jerusalem will go into captivity. It says the women will be ravished. It's a terrible time that's coming on Jerusalem. But when Christ returns, he then, as it says, pours out upon Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one that grieves for a firstborn. In that day, notice this is Zechariah chapter 12 verse 11. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan. It's just talking about the terribly sad time, mixing, you notice this often happens in the prophets. They'll sometimes mix the, the bad with the good, and then back to the bad, and then back to the good. Sometimes you've got to be able to, when you're studying and reading Isaiah and Jeremiah, you've got to understand that the, the, um, there's an ebb and flow in the prophecies. But here in Zechariah 13, uh, and in verse uh, 1, it says, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. You know, I remember one time I went down to... uh, uh, when I was in Jerusalem, to the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, this is the supposed uh, burial place of Jesus Christ. And when you go there, there's this big church, and of course all those churches are dark and dusty and smelly. And, and as you're in there, you go down into what's called the crypt, and you go down this set of stairs, and it's down in this sort of a grotto, is supposedly where Jesus Christ was buried. Of course, that's within the city walls, and we know that Jesus Christ was buried outside the city walls. So, there's no way the Church of the Holy Sepulchre can be the place where Christ was, was buried. Suffice to say, this is the Catholic place. And as I went down there, there was a fellow there in the dark, dark depths of this grotto muttering and carrying on in a you know, dirty, disheveled habit. And I thought to myself, this is not godly. This is demonic. You know, and I read this scripture here. And that's what it says. It says, I will cause, in the end of verse 2, the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. All of those demonic people who were stirred up to go and commit suicide by blowing themselves up, a lot of those are, are driven by demons. I'm not saying all of them. But, you know, there is, there is evil, there is witchcraft, there is wickedness in the city of Jerusalem today. It is not God's place. It is not his, his city. Now notice verse 3. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and his mother who begot him will say to him, You shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother who begot him <coughs> shall thrust him through when he prophesies. That's pretty graphic uh, prophecy. And so it says here, Uh, as we read down a little further into uh, chapter 14. And we read, of course, that uh, beautiful prophecy 
um, in verse 16. So Zechariah chapter 14 verse 16, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They, sh- they shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not, cup a- to do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. (laughs) Well, these are wonderful scriptures, wonderful prophecies. And you and I have been called to a time where we can look forward to the fact that we will be there. Psalm 48, Psalm 48, David looked forward likewise to that time. Here in Psalm 48, David longed for the time when Mount Zion, when Jerusalem would be the capital of the world and Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, will be seated on his throne in Jerusalem. Psalm 48, and let's just notice some of these beautiful, beautiful words. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. That God is Jesus Christ. He's going to be seated and enthroned in those palaces. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. For behold, the kings assembled. Which kings? We will be kings and priests. They're the kings that will be there. It says, For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They saw it and so they marveled. And then, of course, there'll be kings from other nations that will come as well, physical kings. And it says of them too, uh, they were troubled, they hastened away, fear took a hold of them. Now notice as we come down a little uh, further on into verse 9, we have thought, O God, on your loving kindness. In the midst of your temple, according to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgment. And so we're going to see a time where Jesus Christ sits in Jerusalem, ruling over the whole earth, and you and I will have the chance to help administer the peoples of the earth at that time. So let's close with a scripture in Isaiah chapter 66. You know, when the archaeological excavations were being performed when I was there in 1971 they had recently come across this inscription 
written at a time, maybe at the time of Hezekiah, uh, but here in Isaiah 66 and verse 10, maybe it was after Hezekiah, but certainly a long time ago, this particular inscription was engraved in the stones of the temple wall, Isaiah chapter 66 and in verse 10. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her. That you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom. That you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream, then you shall feed on her sides, shall you be carried, and be dandled on her knees, as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants in his indignation to his enemies." And then we can see that Jesus Christ will establish his government on this earth. And the peace, the city of peace, will finally be Jerusalem as it should have been a long time ago. So we look forward to that time. Don't look to now in your life. Live your life as if, as if you are a citizen of Jerusalem in the kingdom. It won't be the new Jerusalem spoken of at the end of the book of Revelation, but it'll be a, a physical city of Jerusalem, but with a spirit king, Jesus Christ, and the spirit beings, the sons of God, dwelling there as well. Do you look forward to that? I certainly do. You know, the Jews, for many, many years, when they were in exile from Jerusalem, and as the Feast of Tabernacles would come, they would say, next year in Jerusalem. Well, it probably won't be next year for us, but in not too many years, we too will be in Jerusalem.